In the month of May, Grace Fellowship was all around the world. Our short-term missions teams did some wonderful ministry work in Peru and Uganda last month. They listened, learned, taught, prayed, sang, and worked with the people there. They brought the joy and hope of the gospel with them, and they've carried the blessing of these experiences back home. If you see someone from one of these teams in the lobby, ask to hear their stories. We have a lot more short-term missions trips lined up for later this year. If you'd like to be a part of one, you can find out all about them online at gracefellowship.com forward slash mission trips. As the family of God, we should be known for our love for one another. We read in the New Testament that we're to accept each other, support and encourage each other, and care for one another. One of the ways we do that here at Grace is through the ministry of Grace in Action. Sure, you can serve in the community through Grace in Action. Hundreds of us have done that. But did you know that you can also sign up to help meet practical needs for people right within the Grace family that have no other means of help? I'm talking about helping people with stuff like yard work, moving, and little fix-it jobs around the house. Serving through Grace in Action is a great way to meet new people and put your talents and experience to work for God's glory. Sign up to help our church family and give it a try at gracefellowship.com forward slash grace in action. The 2020 Vision Campaign is continuing to build momentum toward our first construction day at Grace Latham. Right now, our giving total to the campaign has just climbed past 3.6 million. Again, hats off to each person and family who has given sacrificially to this campaign. We're in this together, and we're believing God for a whole lot of fruit for the kingdom of God through 2020 vision. And now Pastor Rex is going to come and bring us the next message in the series about knowing God's plan. Today, we'll see how God speaks to us through his word, the Bible. Pastor Rex, take it away. All right. Now I'm ready to preach. Woo! The Bible is the key source for knowing God's will. I hope we all would embrace that, certainly if we're Christ followers. But it's also true that the Bible is the most misunderstood book that's ever been written. That is absolutely true. I think history would bear that out. So why is the Bible so misunderstood? One reason is because I think most people who've been even encouraged to read Scripture haven't received a lot of training in how to read it and how to best interpret the Bible. So that's where I want to go today. Now, you're going to feel like you're drinking from a fire hydrant at a few moments in this, I think. But I urge you to just kind of, you know, step up to the challenge today. And if you're our guest, this isn't typically the way a sermon is. Usually they're a little more kind of relatable to life. But I want you to consider yourself a seminary student today. Can you do that? I first heard these principles as a student in seminary. And I believe that too often we just make assumptions about that people are just going to figure it out on their own. But that's not the case typically. So I want us to talk about a kind of a crash course in hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is just a fancy word for the discipline of responsible Bible interpretation. And here's the first thing we got to understand. It is all about context. You've got to understand whatever you're reading in the Bible in its appropriate context. Let me illustrate that. There was a farmer 
in the deep south. This old man was walking along one day on the road with his mule and his dog. And a man came the opposite direction, just barreling down on them, going far too fast. And he really plowed into the man, his mule and his dog, and knocked them into the ditch. And later, the old man sued the driver of the pickup truck. So they're in court. And the defense attorney was cross-examining the old man. And he asked him, now I'd like for you to answer, sir, yes or no. Did the defendant here ask you if you were all right? The old farmer said, me and my mule and my dog. He said, sir, I'm asking you to answer yes or no. Did the defendant here ask you if you were all right? The old man started again, me and my mule and my dog. The attorney turned to the judge and said, your honor, would you please ask him to answer the question? The judge said, no, let him go ahead and say what he's going to say. See, the old man started again, me and my mule and my dog, your honor, we're walking down the road and this man here plowed into us and knocked us all into the ditch. Then he got out of his truck with a gun in his hands. He checked my dog and saw that he was injured, so he shot him. Then he went over to my mule and saw that he had broken his leg, and so he shot him. And then the man came and stood over me with his gun. And he looked at me and said, how are you? And I said, I've never felt better in my life. <laughs> Context of any words is very important. In fact, if you take a text out of its context, you have got a con. So I want to talk with you today in this little crash seminary course we're taking together about four units of truth that are building blocks on which we can build an accurate understanding of what the scripture is saying. Now please understand that I'm just going to be hitting the highlights because we could literally pause and spend hours on each one of these if we had the time. But we're going to move fast. The first building block is the sentence. What I would say to you here, and if you're taking notes, I certainly urge you to write these building blocks down. The first one is the sentence. What I would say to you is be careful about building any understanding of God's will, any doctrine on partial sentences or mere phrases taken out of a sentence. So many doctrinal errors down through the centuries have been caused by taking five or six words out of a sentence and building a theology on that. Okay? For instance, did you realize that there are 15 times in Scripture where it says there is no God? It's true. The Bible 15 different times declares there is no God. So if you want to be an atheist... You've got 15 texts that you can build a sermon on proclaiming there is no God. But if you look at each one of those in its context, it says something quite different. Just to mention a few of them, Deuteronomy 32, 39 is one of them. And it says, there is no God besides me. I think you'll agree that's quite a different meaning. Or Psalm 14, 1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. A completely different meaning when you take the whole sentence. 
Or for instance, 1 Kings 8, 23. O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below. And we could go on and on with examples. So, you say, Pastor Rex, that's silly. Nobody would ever do that. Yes, they would. It happens all the time on a very regular basis. So what I'm saying first is never base any theological understanding or a sense of God's will on something unless it is taking the full sentence in Scripture, as it appears in Scripture, into consideration. If you do that, you will eliminate potentially thousands of of misunderstandings or doctrinal errors. Don't you feel better already? Your seminary course is paying off, okay? So let's move ahead. The first unit is the sentence. The second unit of truth is the paragraph of which the sentence is a part. As you read the paragraph, as you read, please don't let the chapter divisions and the verse divisions drive your thinking because the chapter and verse designations in your bible are not trust me are not divinely inspired none of the oldest manuscripts of the bible have chapter divisions or verse divisions you say but where did they come from well the chapter divisions first appeared in about 1228 and they were put there by a man named Stephen Langton, who was a lecturer at the University of Paris and later served as the Archbishop of Canterbury, Canterbury for some time. He's the one who came up with the chapter divisions. The verse divisions were put in over 300 years later, in about the year 1551, when a printer, actually, a man who was in the business of printing, this is... The printing press has, actually hasn't been invented all that long at this point. And scripture was the first thing that was actually printed. Scripture and sermons and pamphlets about the Bible and so on. And his name was Robert Stephanus. In some places you'll find a different name. He actually bore two last names. Uh, it's a long explanation. I'll not go into it. But it's 1551. And in a Greek and Latin edition of the Bible, he put in verse divisions for the very first time. Then about nine years later, the first English version of the Bible to have verse divisions in it was the Geneva Bible, which dates back to about 1560. Now, what am I saying? Do we need the chapter and verse divisions? Oh, they're awesome in finding things. If I were to say to you right now, hey, everybody, turn to Isaiah 59, verse 2, you could go straight to it, right? Because we have chapter and verse divisions. They're awesome in finding things, but never let them drive your theology. Don't assume as you're reading that just because a chapter ends that the thought of the writer is ending there. Because sometimes these chapter and verse divisions... I actually wonder if these guys were on something, like a strong drug when they put them in, because they come at the most unfortunate places. And I, again, if we had time, I could give you dozens of examples of how the chapter and verse divisions aren't in the most fortunate places, okay? Because they often break up the thought of what the writer is saying. So in other words, as you read scripture, read it not based on chapter and verse divisions, but get the context of the full paragraph 
that you're reading, okay? You've perhaps heard about the guy who was looking to find God's will in the Bible. And he had been taught that the Bible is kind of a magic book. It's kind of like a crystal ball, actually. And if you just flip it open anywhere and plop your finger down, you can find God's will. And so he tried it. Plopped the Bible open at random, put his finger down, and it said Judas went and hanged himself. He said, well, maybe it doesn't work the first time. Let me try this again. He kind of shuffled the pages a, lit, a bit, put his finger down again, and it said, go thou and do likewise. He said, oh, no, this is horrible. I don't know what I'm doing wrong, but let me try this one more time. He plopped his finger down again, and it said, what thou doest, do quickly. I urge you not to use the Bible like a crystal ball. That's not the way God intended it. We need to take full sentences into consideration, and we need to consider the paragraph that the sentence is found in. If you don't do this, it can lead to some bizarre conclusions. Let me give you just, again, for the sake of time, one example. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 29, is one of my favorites. A part of that verse says, From now on, those who have wives should live as if they had none. Now, husbands, are you listening to that? We're reading the Bible today. There's nothing like the public reading of Scripture, and that's what the Bible says to you, husbands, you married men. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they had none. There it is. It's a full sentence. We're following all the right hermeneutical principles up to this point. However, if you look at the whole paragraph, you see that Paul is making the case there that because this world in its present form is passing away, it is ephemeral, that whatever your married state, whether married or single, God wants us to live in a focused and committed, undivided manner as we serve him. And within that context, this sentence makes all the sense in the world. So, I'm making the point that if the first unit of truth is the sentence, then the sentence has to be understood in the context of the paragraph of which it is a part. But let's move on in our seminary class. The third unit of truth is the subject that's being dealt with at the time. Again, for the sake of brevity, let's just give one illustration of this. You've all heard of the story of the Good Samaritan, right? Some of you know it well. A man was going on a journey from Jerusalem to Jericho. He was mugged by some thieves. They beat him, robbed him, stripped him, left him on the side of the road, half dead. A priest comes along, passes by on the other side, doesn't want to get involved. Likewise, a Levite comes along, passes by on the other side. But then a despised Samaritan, a man that would you'd never think would stop in that culture because he was despised as a, as a person. He stops and compassionately gets off his donkey. He takes care of the man. He binds up his wounds. He takes him to a nearby inn for the innkeeper to take care of him. He leaves two silver coins there. He says, look, this will pay for your trouble, sir. I've got to go away, but I will return. And if you spend more than this, I will reimburse you for your troubles. What an amazing story that is in the Bible. But do you realize that in the Middle Ages... It was common to interpret that parable, that story, in the following way. And by the way, there's been tons of sermons preached 
with this interpretation. The man traveling on his journey represents the human race. And ever since we left the Garden of Eden, Satan and his demons have been trying to mug us. They brutalize us, and sometimes we find ourselves half dead on the side of the road. And so God sent the law to help. That's represented by the priest, but it couldn't help. It passed by on the other side. And then he sent the prophets to help. That's represented by the Levite, but it couldn't really help either. And then along comes one who can really help. He is despised, and we all know, and they would usually refer then to Isaiah 53, we know who the one was, don't we all, who was despised and rejected by men? Yes, Jesus Christ himself, the suffering servant. And he compassionately took care of the man, bound up his wounds, took him to the inn. And of course, the inn represents the church. We need to get these broken, beaten up people into the church where they can get some help. And he left some money, and that represents the Holy Spirit. Because God has left his Holy Spirit with us to help us get better and become what we need to be as we go to full health. And then they would usually throw in some people, especially in the last couple hundred years, and I've got a sneaking suspicion that the two coins represent 2,000 years, and that's when Jesus is going to return. Now, isn't that an interesting sermon? I'll guarantee you, if I preach that sermon that way here at Grace, a whole bunch of people would love it. It would sell more copies than any sermon we've ever had. If I wrote it up in a book, it would be a blockbuster. But it's rubbish. It has nothing to do with the story of the Good Samaritan. Nothing. It's garbage. Now, the individual points of the story are true, right? God did leave his Holy Spirit with us. Yes, the church can help people. Yes, God sent the law. Yes, God sent the prophets. Yes, we are harassed by Satan and his demons. Yes, Jesus is the Savior. Of course, of course. But that has nothing to do with the story of the Good Samaritan. If you look at the subject that was being dealt with, Jesus gave that story in a context. Remember, context is king. In a context where a lawyer stood up and asked, who is my neighbor? And then Jesus gave the story. And Jesus then asked him at the end of it, who was neighbor to the man who fell prey to those thieves? And he said, the one who had compassion on him. And Jesus said, go thou and do likewise. It's a story about how to be a good neighbor. That was the context, how to love your neighbor. That's what was being discussed. So the sentence is understood in light of the paragraph, the paragraph in light of the subject that's being talked about at that time. And if we don't understand this, we're going to come up with some bizarre theology. The next unit of truth is the book from which you are reading. Because each book of the Bible has its own purpose. And often, it is a different type of literature, therefore having to be read a bit differently than other books in the Bible. If you read every book in the Bible with exactly the same set of lenses, you are going to be in trouble finding God's will. For example, just to pick one illustration, the book of Proverbs is not the book of promises. 
Look at the title of it. It doesn't say the book of promises. It says the book of Proverbs. So when you come across a proverb such as Proverbs 22, 6, train a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he'll not turn from it. You've got to understand the book you're reading. It's the book of Proverbs. And yet in my life, I've heard dozens of sermons. I've heard, I've seen preachers sweat and say, that's a promise from God. You hang on to that, parents. That's not a promise. That's a proverb. It's from the book of Proverbs. What is a proverb? A bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. What goes around comes around. Those are not biblical proverbs, but they're proverbs. A proverb is an observation about how life generally works. So is it generally true? That when you do a responsible job parenting and when you point your child toward the tenets of the faith and model Christ before them, that they will embrace the faith. That's a general truth. It's proverbially true. But you're going to be all torn up inside if you're seeing that as an absolute exhaustive promise from God. It is not. You say, but I want to claim it as a promise. God's going to say, I didn't give it to you as a promise. I gave it to you as a proverb. That's the way I gave it to you. It's in the book of Proverbs. And remember what I also told you in the book of Proverbs. A man can have a fool for a son. You may have done an amazing job as a you might, You might be an extraordinary parent. The teaching of scripture is consistently that we make our own choices about whether we're going to follow Christ or not or what our belief system is going to be. And that's on us individually, not on our parents, not on the new covenant. That's on us. So it may be that your daughter or your son is simply choosing a different path and that's on them. Every book of the Bible must be interpreted in light of the genre of that book. History books in the Bible have to be read as history, not as poetry, or you're going to get the wrong meaning. Poetry books can't be read in exactly the same way as epistles are read. Apocalyptic literature has to be read through, read through an apocalyptic lens, or you're going to get bizarre understandings. So you have to consider, what is the book in which this is found. Are you doing okay in seminary? Does anybody need any oxygen right now, okay? We can come up for oxygen in just a minute. I told you it was going to be a little like drinking from a fire hydrant. But keep your thinking caps on with me. You're just in seminary this one day, all right? I promise. The fifth unit of truth is the testament in which it appears. As you're reading the Bible, ask yourself, am I reading in the Old Testament or the New Testament? Why? Because it may make a serious difference in how you interpret it. For instance, let me give you a sampling of commands from the Old Testament. Just a sampling. And see how you're doing obeying these, all right? Leviticus 19.28. Let's just have a little fun. Lighten up a little bit. Smile. It'll help you. Do not cut your bodies for the dead or put tattoo marks on yourselves. I am the Lord. How are you doing obeying that? 
Exodus 20, 13. You shall not murder. How you doing? Obeying that. Leviticus 19, 27. Do not cut the hair on the sides of your head. Oops, I slipped this week on that one. Okay. Or clip off the edges of your beard. Are you obeying that? Deuteronomy 22, 10. Do not plow with an ox and a donkey yoked together. Now, I can't remember the last time I did that, but I know it's been a while since I broke that command. And here's one that really touches my heart. Leviticus 3.16, all the fat is the Lord's. Are you obeying that? Are you really giving all the fat, all of it, all the fat, all of it to the Lord? Oh, that touches me. Deuteronomy 22, 11 and 12. Do not wear clothes of wool and linen woven together. Make tassels on the four corners of the cloak you wear. Now, it does not say your tassels can be on your golf shoes. You've got to have them on the cloak. So do you have those tassels on your cloak? And finally, here's a good one. And I just summarized this instead of putting all the verses. But Deuteronomy 21, verses 18 to 21, teaches clearly that you must stone a rebellious son. Are you obeying that? I sense there's a lot of disobedience in this church. I just want to tell you right now, you are choosing to disobey some of these commands. Now, they're in the Bible. <laughs> You've decided to disobey some of these commands, and frankly, I'm quite glad that you've chosen to disobey some of them. But here's the question of all questions. Upon what basis did you make that choice to disobey some of these and to not treat them seriously? Why are there some Old Testament commands that we do not obey the way we would obey a New Testament command? That is an incredibly important question. So again, you're in seminary today just for one day. So grin and bear it. I'm going to give you three kinds of law in the Old Testament, and it is crucial that you understand the difference between these, or again, there's going to be massive confusion, and you're going to wonder, why do we not take that seriously, and yet we take other things seriously? They are the moral law, the civil law, and the ceremonial law. Let me unpack them for you, and I want to tell you up front, in case you go looking for them. They're not divided into nice, neat little packages in the Old Testament. Why is that? Because the Old Covenant people did not separate the sacred and the secular. To them, all of life was sacred, okay? And I think these categories are very helpful in grappling with the question, why do we obey and follow some of the commands in the Old Testament, but not all of them? So here we go. Write this down. The moral law consists of principles that express the very nature and character of God. Ten Commandments are a prime example of this. We are to tell the truth. Why? Because God is truth. We're to be faithful to our spouse. Why? Because God's character is faithfulness. We're to respect the sanctity of life. Why? Because he is the way, the truth, and the life. We're to be holy because God is holy. We are to love because God is love. These moral principles flow directly 
from the nature of God and they will never be obsolete. Why? Because God never changes. They're based on the very character of God. So when we're speaking of this moral law, I would assert that there's a total continuity between the Old and the New Testaments. Those moral laws are still in force for us as New Testament believers. So as we ask the question, how does the Old Testament apply? Oh my goodness. We conclude that it's the moral laws, they're what Jesus called the weightier, Jesus called them the weightier matters of the law. The second division is the civil law. That's very different. It regulated Israel as the nation chosen by God to be his special people. Now, the civil law is an illustration of the principles of the moral law. If you want to read this when you get home, you can look at Exodus chapters 21, 22, and 23 and get a good sampling of it. Or you can go to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 5 through 26 is really civil laws for the nation of Israel that are really explaining the Ten Commandments and kind of applying them and unpacking them in an orderly fashion. Now, what do I mean when I say the civil law is an illustration of the principles of the moral law? Let me give you one example. Deuteronomy 25, one of the sections I pointed you to. Verse 4, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. In other words, don't put a muzzle on it. Allow it to eat food while it's working. Well, I don't own an ox, so I can ignore that, right? I did have a dog that would eat anything, but I do not have an ox. So, therefore, that verse doesn't apply to me. It has nothing to say to me, right? I can just ignore that in the Bible completely, right? Wrong. I can't just ignore it because I don't have an ox. This is an illustration or an application of a greater moral principle behind it. A principle that, again, is linked directly to the character of God. And I believe the principle behind that command is mercy and kindness. God wants his people to be kind and merciful, not only to their fellow humans, but also to animals. And when I, as the farmer, practice that, I am becoming more like God in kindness and mercy and generosity and sensitivity. It's being cultivated in me. So, I can't just ignore these Old Testament civil laws and dismiss them. We need to look for the principle behind the specific command. These moral laws were for the national life of Israel, and there's no indication anywhere in Scripture that they should extend beyond the nation of Israel in that ancient form. But the universal principle behind it is still valid today. So, if you've ever wondered... Why we don't execute adulterers in the church, you've now got your answer. Because the civil law under the old covenant said to do that. But we don't do it because we're not to obey that specific command anymore. But there is to be discipline enacted in the church. That's the principle behind it. That's also the reason we don't stone rebellious sons or daughters, by the way. And all of the teenagers said hallelujah, okay? We have to understand this within the context of the testament in which it's a part. Third is the ceremonial law. That defined how Israel was to worship God. 
Now, where do you find that? Again, I told you they're not nice, neat little packages. But if you want to get a good sampling of that, you could go to Exodus 25 all the way through the book of Leviticus. By the way, if you want to, I've noticed this. When people get a resolution, they're going to read their way through the Bible. I've noticed through the years that they usually stall in Leviticus, okay? They start hitting the ceremonial laws. They're having a good time through Genesis, Exodus. The first 20 chapters or so are really exciting. They're thinking, wow, the Bible's great. And then they hit Leviticus. And they get a big case of Leviticus. And their eyes glaze over and they go, I don't know if I'm going to make it through this. Because it's talking exactly about how many rings are supposed to be in the curtain. And how many cubits something's supposed to be. And you're going like, what does this have to do with anything? Those are the ceremonial laws. They had a built-in obsolescence. They became obsolete the moment Jesus died on the cross. You say, well, what does the ceremonial law include? It includes all those teachings about the tabernacle in the wilderness, how worship was to be conducted. Why is it obsolete? Why is it not valid for us today? Because... Jesus Christ fulfilled that type in the Old Testament. It pointed to him. The ceremonial law includes all those passages about sacrifices and burnt offerings and wave offerings and grain offerings and so on and so forth. Jesus fulfilled all of that as the book of Hebrews makes crystal clear. So what are the conclusions here? The moral laws are still absolutely valid. They never go away because they're rooted in the very character of God. He never changes. He is immutable. The civil laws are valid in that they give us ideas or illustrations of how the moral principles behind them should be applied to specific situations. If you want to understand why, the, by the way, how we got the idea that a fence should go around your in-ground pool, I'll let you find that in the Old Testament. Did you know that came from the Old Testament? It's an application of the idea of looking out and caring for the good of others. Now, they weren't talking about pools in the Old Testament, but they were talking about dangerous places like on your roof, which you had to put a fence around. That was taken directly from the Old Testament and applied to us today, and so you've got a fence around your in-ground pool. It's try to, try to protect innocent people and people that are unaware of the danger. And the ceremonial laws are obsolete because they've been fulfilled or abolished by Christ. But even the ceremonial laws can inspire us and they can make us marvel at how Jesus fulfilled them perfectly. Well, we have two more units and they're going to go fast here. The sixth unit is the whole Bible. The whole Bible. I urge you not to think of Old and New Testaments separately but as one progressive revelation of truth. In fact, I want you to remember this little ditty. You might want to write it down in your notes. The new is in the old contained. The old is in the new explained. The new is in the old contained. The old is in the new explained. In other words, they dovetail together beautifully. The Old Testament has all kinds of types, 
and promises and prophecies and clues that now come to full light and fulfillment in the New Testament. And they tell of a glorious gospel, by the way, for both Jews and Gentiles. So we have to interpret the Testaments in light of the whole of Scripture. It is one seamless piece of revelation from God. And finally, that last seventh unit, we interpret everything in the light of Christ. Because a marvelous thing happened under the new covenant. You know what it is? The word became flesh. It's no longer on tablets of stone, ink on a page. Now the word is living. The truth is embodied in Christ. And the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. The whole of Scripture has to ultimately be interpreted in the light of Christ. You remember that wonderful story in Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, where Jesus appears to two people on the road to Emmaus, and they strike up a conversation. And it says that Jesus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Old Testament stuff, explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. I love that. I love the fact that the Old Testament scriptures from Moses all the way through the prophets can be explained in relation to Christ himself. He's all over the Bible in type in some clue, in some prophecy, in some teaching. That's why Jesus said to the Jewish leaders in John 5, you diligently search the scriptures because you think that in them you find eternal life. But these are the scriptures that testify about me. But you refuse, you refuse to come to me to have life. Jesus said it all points to me. Just as all roads lead to Rome... All truth leads to Christ. And everything in Scripture must be ultimately interpreted in the light of the living Savior. So there you have it. You survived. Praise God. Crash course in hermeneutics. God is good. I hope you never read the Bible exactly the same again. May we read it with more understanding. May we read it responsibly. May we read it with joy, knowing that it is a living word. And we have the key source for knowing God's will. And it's found right in the Bible. Father, thank you for the treasure we have in your written word. And I thank you, Lord, that you make it come alive in us through Christ in us, the hope of glory. Thank you that we could kind of get a little seminary-like today, do a little crash course in hermeneutics, help us to be responsible students of your word, but help us to joyfully search the scriptures, knowing that in them we find you, the light of life. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.